The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. Revelation 13, and we've been in, this is like the ninth or so, I think the ninth time we've, we've, we've gone through the book of Revelation, and I have had so much fun uh, with that. And so now we're in chapter 13. And, you know, it just gets, seems to get more and more fun every week, you know, these teachings. And, you know, and I had, I had mentioned two weeks ago when I was last with you, uh, uh, some of these things, I could probably print some things out, and just some general terms and information and things to you guys sometimes. But two weeks ago, I sort of took a little bit of time and just gave a few terminologies and mentioned some things uh, that I am, and I think many of you are, uh, uh, at least somewhat on board or can see what I've been teaching here in what's called preterism. Preter, which is, people hear that word and I think it sounds like predator, so they get a little weird. And church people don't like to go to church and think. You know, we like to go to be entertained and then get for 30 minutes and go home. Well, we don't do that here and you get that and you keep coming back, so you get it for real. But, you know, preterist is just, it means pre, P-R-E, pre. Like, it's from the Latin word praetor, P-R-E-A-T, or praetor, which just means past past fulfillment. Every Christian is a preterist in certain things. If you believe the Messiah already came and brought redemption, then you're a preterist in that regard. You believe in a past fulfillment of that. You understand what I mean? Um, I, of course, am also an eschatological, eschatology, doctrine of last things, uh, preterist. So I believe in a past fulfillment of these things. And I also mentioned that most of church history, while there has never been Regardless of what there has or hasn't been in other areas, there has never been an absolute uniform view of eschatology. Even the very early church fathers had different views on some things. But the main thing they all held to was, at the very least, a partial past fulfillment of the doctrine of last things or eschatology. The early church emphatically, and to be honest with you, 1,800 years of church history emphatically understood things like Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, which is also found in Luke 21 and Mark 13. They all understood that those things were fulfilled with the invasion and destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD. They emphatically understood that, right? Daniel chapter 9, you've got Daniel 70 weeks, and you've got the time frame, and the you know, 490 years, and all of that. And from the going forth of the, uh, of the commandment to rebuild the temple, which is in Ezra chapter 7, uh, Esther chapter 7. Uh, they understood, and that's why when Jesus came, there was extreme messianic fervor, <coughs> messianic fever and fervor. Is he here? Is it you? Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you he that is to come? Are you Jeremiah? I mean, they're asking John this. They're asking Jesus this. This was in the atmosphere because they knew from the time frame of Daniel 9 and Daniel 70 weeks, he's supposed to be here. So they understood that. And so the church is thinking these things are in our future when we should be glad that these things are in our past. And it wasn't until a man by the name of John Nelson Darby in the 1830s came along with a new doctrine that for 1830 years no Christian had ever heard of called dispensationalism. And he, he, he quit viewing things through covenants and said, well, God operates through dispensations. And anyone's free, you know, just kind of free to make up your dispensation wherever you want to put it. God doesn't work through dispensations. God works through covenants. You'll find the word dispensation in the King James translation a few times, but it literally just means stewardship. 
to dispense something to someone, to steward it to someone. And people think it means a certain time frame where God does certain things in certain ways. No, God operates through covenants. To dispense something, yeah, you'll find that word, but it has nothing to do with, you know, this type of understanding. Uh, so Mr. Darby, God bless him, and I'm emphatically sure he's in heaven and probably knew a lot more than me and a lot of things. Uh, but I think he did the church a tremendous disservice by inject, interjecting this brand new, never heard of before uh, eschatology known as dispensationalism. Uh, but nonetheless, so we got into some of those things, and I make no bones about it. I think these things are uh, very damaging to the body of Christ. Uh, what would it mean if you didn't have seven years of hell on earth to look forward to one day? Wouldn't that just be a great thing? No. <laughs> Jordan, if you take away my uh, my my future great tribulation, if you if you take my tribulation from me, what am I going to have left? <laughs> just, just Jesus and victory. That's all. Just Jesus. Just an everlasting kingdom. Just victory. Sorry. That's all. You know. And if and, and if those things haven't happened, by the way, we're still under all of the Mosaic law. Jesus said. Uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle of the law will yes. in any wise or in any measure pass away. Well, heaven and earth, the Jews in the first century understood that meant the temple. So until the temple passes away, the law won't pass away. But when the temple was destroyed, the law passed away. And that's why to this very day, 2,000 years later, there is no such thing as biblical Judaism. You cannot have biblical, and no Jew will never deny this. They, even the rabbis, I mean, this is just... Christians don't necessarily get it, but they get it, and many of us get it. There's no such thing as biblical Judaism without a temple. you got to have a temple to sacrifice animals, right? And so that's why to this day, there's you can't be under part of the law. There's no such thing as that. Uh, you know, so anyways, uh, let me just try to go to Revelation here for a minute. Uh, but I, I, I'm just spitballing some things to get our mind back in this place and to get some things out there. Um, I don't, I'm not the type of preacher, I never demand that people have to agree with me, or you have to, there's many people in here who have many different views on many different things, and I am perfectly fine with that, as long as we can do it agreeably. I, I'm fine with dialogue, uh, healthy, proper debate even, I cannot stand arguing, though, over doctrine, and fighting, and getting, you know, down on people, and uh, uh, or shunning people, ostracizing, I can't stand that stuff, man. We got people in this church here right now that have different views on hell. Some people in here believe in everlasting, uh, eternal, conscious torment. Some people in this church believe in uh, what's called annihilationism. Some people in this church might be open or believe in even, you know, some sort of ultimate reconciliation. I don't demand that you. I say let's be biblical. There's biblical arguments that you could make a case for, you know what I'm saying, different things. You know, we, we know part, in part, so to speak. And so that's fine, and we can have different views on eschatology and different views on many different things, right? But let's, let's do it in a spirit of love. There are certain non-negotiables. I wouldn't let someone, I would let in this church, but I wouldn't let somebody have, have a, a place of influence in this church who didn't believe Jesus, you know what, like was the only way or the you know, divine. You know, there, there are certain non-negotiables. Um, but there are... Uh, very much so, uh, some things that we can uh, talk about and, and have healthy dialogue about. And, and when your security is in the person of Jesus and not your doctrine, you lose that insecurity and that defensiveness. You see what I mean? And, and that's a great place to be. So praise God, we have an atmosphere and a culture here like that in this church. Revelation 13, verse 1. <clears throat> Did I just... 
my tablets are wigging out on me. Hmm. Let's see here. Um, let me try it another way. Is it there now? So that's that's still there? Because it was going bad. Okay, cool. Revelation one. Is it warm in here? Yes. Yeah. Fire. Thank you, Lord. But we gotta go up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll keep the fire. <laughs> you called it. Yes. Yeah, and what you say? Revelation thirteen one. And the dragon stood on this uh, the sand of the seashore. Then I saw. Now notice this. Now we saw back in the previous two chapters the dragon is Satan, all right? Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Now, very often in the book of Revelation, the sea refers to the Gentiles. And that's why when you get close to the end of the book, there is no more sea, because in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, only a new creation, right? So we see this beast is coming out of the sea, and he has ten horns and seven heads, now, we know that Rome is the city on seven hills. Now, Rome's the city on seven hills. But at this time, the, the kingdom of Rome had ten different provinces. All right? There were ten different provinces. And on his horns were ten diadems. Ruler, you know, that speaks of ruler and kingship. And, and on his head were blasphemous names. So this is not a good kingdom. <laughs> blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him, the beast, the dragon gave the beast power, his throne, and great authority. So we see, in other words, that it is Satan who is the true head of this ungodly Roman Empire, this Roman Empire that persecuted and killed Christians. You understand this oppressive empire that had conquered the world. And so, if like if you go back to Daniel, which I'm not saying turn there. I'm just if you if you read like in Daniel chapter two and you know the dream that Daniel gets, you know Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then Daniel tells him what the dream was and interprets the dream, and then you get the four kingdoms, right? So you had Babylon at that time which was King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian kingdom, was the great world power. Then you had the Medo-Persians. Then you have Greece, or the Greeks, which was Alexander the Great in his kingdom. And then you had Rome. Now some people, I don't know how they do it, they take those four kingdoms and they say that Rome refers to a yet future so-called revised Roman Empire. Of course, there's no scripture for that. And so you get the ten here, and you get some ten things in the book of Daniel, and then they say, oh, there's going to be these ten princes rise up. And then when the, European, the EU, the European Union started, when it was under the number ten, oh, that's it. That's going to be it. This revised Roman Empire. And then, of course, it's way past ten now. I don't even know what, what's going on with all that stuff these days. Uh, I know a couple of years ago, some countries were leading the EU. I don't even know. Is it still together? I think it is in some capacity. Yeah, I don't even know. But it blew past the ten. And so, of course, there's nothing in Scripture about it. And then, look. 
People get into some bizarre, bizarre, bizarre things that have no scripture about how Islam and the Catholic Church are going to get together and the Pope's a secret Muslim and, and God knows what else. Uh, and they're going to get together and create this. Uh, no scripture for it. I'm not saying everything they do is right. And I'm not saying Islam is a valid religion because obviously I don't think that. I, I, and you know, there's a lot of great Muslims, and then we know there's some crazy groups out there too. I mean, you know, in any camp there is. But you get what I'm saying. But that doesn't mean they're scriptural and that the Pope is going to line up with, you know, and uh, the Muslims and create some new world religious order and all this stuff. There's no scripture for any of that. Now, notice this. Verse 3. And I'm gonna, we're going to dig into a few things here. I'll be as brief as I can. He said, I saw one of his heads as one of his heads as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth, now what's the word earth there in the Greek? Gay, which is used most of the time in the book of Revelation. It means land. It'd be a much better translation. It refers specifically to the land of Israel. All right, the land of Israel. Uh, uh, so you read that and you think, oh, the whole entire world. No, sorry, it's just a bad translation. That's all what it means. It's not necessarily a bad translation. It was better for, maybe that's how they spoke and understood. But from the Greek and in the New Testament, it's the land. And it'll be like, and I mentioned always, Luke chapter, you know, well, that's what you meant. But you have many other places where it'll say the, the land of Judea, the land of Galilee, the land of uh, Zebulon. The land, it's, it's a land. It's a certain area. Right? All right. Now, and the whole land of Israel, in other words, was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, the, the, this beast here is referring to, once again, what, what did it have here? The, the ten, uh, how, how do we say here? The ten horns and the seven heads roams the city on seven hills, but it had ten different provinces, all right? And, and sort of sub-rulers under the Caesar. And, uh, says his fatal wound was healed, the whole, the whole land was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, the Jews, according to their law, uh, read through the law, it won't take you very long, uh, books of Moses and many other books, and you'll find references to where the Lord tells them that they are to have no other king except Yahweh. But we know that at this time, the Jews in the first century began flirting with the Roman Emperor, and they began in more than just flirting, they even at certain points, and I'll show you a couple of things here, uh, began uh, yielding undue authority to Caesar and worship and allegiance to him and his system, which was uh, a rejection of Yahweh. Uh, here's what I want to do. This first beast is essentially the Roman Empire in the first century. Now he says here, though, one of the heads, as if it had been slain, now, I think what he's talking about here, and I'm going to show you some quotes from church history, uh, is Nero. Now, Nero was the very sixth Caesar. He was the sixth Caesar, all right? Um, Nero ruled, and I'm going to say, I know there's children present, I'm probably going to say a couple of things that are a little bit heavy, just a warning, uh, just so you understand uh, in, in a few moments. Nero reigned from 54 to 68 A.D., 12 years. Of course, we know certain things about him. We know that, you know, uh, he set Rome on fire, and, you know, he had that done so he could blame the Christians for it and persecute them. 
We know um, that at his, and I've mentioned this many times, we know that at his dinner parties very often, and this is going to be heavy, parents. I don't know if I should just, but I'm going to say a few things here. In five, four, three, four. Okay. We know that he would take Christians and they would impale them, and then they would cover them in tar, and, and the, the, the poles they were impaled with, they would set up, and then they would set them on fire so they could have light for their dinner parties. This is the kind of ruler that this guy was. All right? Let me read a couple of things to you here. Now, Nero took his own life uh, in 68 AD. Nero, by the way, was the emperor who banished the Apostle John to the Isle of Patmos, or Patmos, however you say it. Let me read this to you here. Um, which one do I want to read first? Let me read this one to you here. You guys have all heard of Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, it seems that Augustine's actually the correct way to say it. Who cares? I'm just theology geek, throwing it out there. But we've all heard of Augustine, or Augustine. He's considered the greatest mind, the greatest thinker, the greatest influencer in Western Christianity's entire church history. Very, very significant man, all right? To say the very least. Here's a quote from Augustine. Now, he lived from 354 uh, to uh, 430, something like that. <clears throat> Let me read this to you here. He says, what means this declaration that the mystery of iniquity is already at work? Now, you know, that's a scripture. Paul said in, what, 2 Thessalonians, the... The, uh, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. And that's what he's referring to here. Wherever it says, it might not be right. He says, what does this declaration mean? That is, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Paul wrote that, so in Paul's lifetime, in other words. Some suppose this is to be spoken of the Roman emperor. And therefore, Paul did not speak in plain words. In other words, he didn't just say Nero. Because he would not incur the charge of calumny, calumny for having spoken evil of the Roman emperor, although he always expected that what he said would be understood as being applied to Nero. Although he always expected that what he said would be understood as applying to Nero. Now here's another guy. This guy's name was Apollonius. Aren't you glad that's not your name? <laughs> Apollonius. <laughs> Apollonius, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Apollonius, and he's known as Apollonius of Tyana, T-Y-A-N-A. He lived from the year 1500 to the year 100 AD. So he lived during all this. He saw the, you know, Nero and his rise, his death. And anyways, here's a, a very famous quote from him in these things. He said, in my travels which have been wider than ever any other man yet accomplished, I have seen many, many wild beasts, causing a beast, notice this, beasts of Arabia and India. But this beast, talking about Nero, who is commonly called 
the tyrant. I do not know how many heads it has. Now, what did we just read about here? The diadems, the provinces, the heads, the Roman. Anyways, he says, uh, I do not know how many heads that it has, or if it be crooked of claw and armed with horrible fangs and of wild beasts. You cannot say that they were ever known. You cannot say of any wild beast that they were ever known to eat their own mother. But Nero has gorged himself on this diet. He killed his mom. Nero had a pregnant uh, wife. And he literally kicked her to death while she was pregnant. Murdered her by kicking her to death. Beat her to death by kicking her to death. Uh, he uh, was an all, he was an extreme hedonist. He was a, a uh, yeah, he, he had a public wedding uh, where he married two young boys, paraded it through the city, and married, so he just, you know, he had a wife, she's pregnant, kill her, got two young boys, marries them, you can let your imagination figure some of these things out. One of his favorite games that he would play was they would cover him in animal fur, it could be a bear, it could be a lion, any sort of type of animal, and they would put him in a cage, and they would have people tied down with chains, legs, hands, still, still rated R here, and they would be tied down, and he, they would open the cage, and Nero would come out of the cage, and come, and uh, act like an animal who was biting, tearing, consuming, and he would murder them that way. Pretty sick dude. This, can you imagine if that was the, the world leader? Yeah, pretty sick. Um, uh, go ahead. Here's another gentleman named, uh, not, not even close, uh, named Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria is a very well-known uh, guy. He's considered one of the church fathers. Um, and by the way, he lived from 150 to 215. He said this about Nero. He said, for he said that there were 2,360 days, quoting the 1,260 days, Daniel said it, John said it in Revelation, from the time that the abomination of Nero stood in the holy city. So there's your abomination of desolation, the Romans coming in. He said, until its destruction. For thus, the declaration which is subjoined shows, and then he quotes from Daniel, how long shall be the vision, the sacrifice is taken away, the abomination of desolation, the power of the holy people treading underfoot, and he said to him till the evening and the morning, 2,360 uh, days, and the holy place is taken away. So in other words, he too here says that Nero was the abomination that came in uh, uh, as a uh, abomination of desolation. Now, so there are many, 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 many more references. Uh, in Ryan, who's not here today, Ryan and Brittany and their family, he texted me and said, hey, we're on our way, but Ava threw up, so we're going to go back home, which, thank you, Ryan. Uh, really, you don't, you know, don't spread the love. Thank you, brother. Uh, hallelujah. Now, um, Ryan had asked me about, are there any quotes from church history? And I, I could uh, give you all sorts of quotes from church history on uh, how the people from way back when, such as these people, uh, people in 
uh, all through the, the generations up to more recent years. People like John Calvin, people like Charles Spurgeon, people like John Wesley, uh, all through people who vi uh, clearly understood and ascribed th these events to the first century. So it's a modern invention, the idea that the Olivet Discourse and all these things, wars and rumors of wars and false Christs and all these, all these things are a modern invention. They're not a biblical idea. All right? Now, keep reading here for a few more moments. We'll wrap it up here. It says, they worshipped him, uh, the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast. Now notice here again in verse 3, one of his heads is after he had been slain. Of course, Nero killed himself at 29 years old. Took his own life. When Nero killed himself, the Roman Empire barely survived, and it almost collapsed altogether. As a matter of fact, it did sort of collapse into a year-long civil war, all right, whenever he took his own life. Uh, but we see resurrection language here, as if it had been slain, but his fatal wound was healed, all right? So he's talking about how the Roman Empire, or the beast, even though it looked like it was going to fall altogether, it somehow came back. It survived its emperor taking his own life and then civil war fighting for who's going to be the next leader and infightings and all these things. It came back with some stability. Somehow. Uh, verse, uh, worship the dragon and the, uh, the beast and they said, who's, who's like the beast? Who could wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Oh yeah. And authority to act for 42 months. What is that? Yet again, the three and a half year motif, which is all, you know, many places. Three and a half years, from 66 to 70 AD. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So in other words, this is the Roman persecution against the people of God. Because you had the unbelieving Jews also attacking and persecuting and suppressing and murdering the Christians, but you also had the Roman Empire attacking the Christians. The Jews were given some freedom. They were allowed to have their temple. They were, you know what I mean? They were allowed to have their sacrifices. They were allowed to, they had to give certain allegiance to Caesar. But within that, they were allowed to have certain freedoms, even though it was somewhat restrictive. But even the Christians weren't even given nothing. You know, they were giving nothing. You know, you go, you preach somewhere, you get beaten, you get thrown in jail, you may or may not get killed that day. Like, that was, you know, sign up for that. You know, that was their ministry in the first century there. Just constant persecution. So he waged war against the people of God. It was also, verse 7, given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell in the land, that's gay, G-E once again, will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been, uh, who uh, has not been written from the foundation of the world, now, that's one of the three places in the book of Revelation where it's the Greek word cosmos. Every other time, it's gay for land of Israel or oikomene for Roman Empire. This is one of the only places, three, uh, where it's the word for world, right? The, what we think of as the whole world, cosmos. Uh, all who dwell on the land will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the cosmos in the book of life, the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined uh, for captivity, that's not a great translation. It really says if anyone's led into captivity, that's a better translation. 
to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, he must be killed with the sword. He's talking about the, a sort of sowing and reaping. As time went on, the Jews are creating more and more upheaval. They're fighting against themselves. They're fighting for control of the temple. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, and uh, they all hated each other and fighting for temple control and the priesthood and the authority. And then they're persecuting Christians, and then they're killing each other, and then there's false messiahs. And all this upheaval is always making the Roman Empire feel threatened to where they finally have to come in and just wipe them out. They can't deal with this threat of anarchy anymore from uh, these millions of Jews. And so they reap what they sow. They kill with the sword. Well, they got killed with the sword. That's what he's basically saying there. Here is the perseverance in the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the yay, out of the land. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke as a dragon. This is the other beast. All right, so you got two beasts. He exercises all the authority of the first beast, the Roman Empire. And he makes the gay, the land, and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, the Roman Empire. So in other words, the Jewish hierarchies, the Jewish authorities were in cahoots more and more progressively with the Roman Empire. I mean, we already know that tax collectors like Matthew, we already know that these guys were in cahoots with the Romans. And these guys were despicable people. They were, it was a mutiny. You know, they would, they were allowed, they had to tax their own people. So they're betraying their own people, which was an abject abomination. They're working with the Romans. And the Romans, the way it worked was, you tax them, you know, whatever amount we say for us and just give us what you owe us. On top of that, tax whatever you want and take that for yourself. All right, so it can be taxed 25%, but they're going to tax 50%, so they can pocket their own money. They had the freedom and authority from Rome to do that. And then that's why, you know, you've got Jesus going into houses and people coming out and saying, man, if I've stolen anything from anyone, I'll restore him fourfold, because that's what he's stealing and taking for himself, right? So we see this type of stuff uh, all through the Gospels, and, and these things start making sense and coming together, right? It's beautiful. Now, uh, all authority of the first beast and his presence. Uh, and he makes all the earth and those who, the land who dwell in it to worship the, the first beast, Rome, uh, whose fatal wound was healed, performed a great sign so that even uh, fire came down out of heaven to the land in the presence of men. Um, let me see here. Do I have something on that? Yeah, let me read this to you here. And, and I, I just need a few more minutes here. Uh, can you turn the air down another notch or two? I am hot now. Please, thank you. Notice this. This is a quote uh, from a, a modern contemporary. It says this on this on this second beast calling fire down. Right? We know this is a prophetic, uh, symbolic book. But notice this. He says, when Vespasian became emperor after Nero, he says the war with Israel resumed, and Titus was thank you was appointed general of the Roman army in Israel. After Titus seized the temple in Jerusalem, the Roman army under Titus's leadership worshipped the ensigns, and one of them was called the Numena Legionum. I don't know how to say it. It means gods of the legions. The gods of the legions was an image of Caesar, <laughs> thus an image of Caesar, Caesar Vespasian and Titus were worshipped in the temple. So that's part of the abomination of desolation 
that Gentile was anyway. And then you got this foreign ruler who's oppressing them, sets up his image in the temple, and the Jews, when sacrificing to Yahweh, have to also start giving allegiance and worship and adoration to the image of the Caesar. Are you following me? He says, immediately prior to this blasphemous worship, Titus called down fire from heaven in fulfillment of Revelation 13. And then he says this, he likely did this by ordering the firing of flaming arrows into Jerusalem during the siege. The Romans launched burning debris into the city during the earlier siege of Jodapata, uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's not my name. That, yeah. And thus likely did the same thing during the siege of Jerusalem shortly thereafter. Titus could also be said to have called down fire from heaven through the command of the 12th legion who aided in the burning and destruction of the temple. The emblem of the 12th legion was a lightning bolt or fire from heaven. And of course, if you just read Josephus, you'll find all this imagery in there. You understand? Using prophetic language that the Jews would understand uh, to describe the events. Now, I, I promise I'm trying to wrap this up here. Thank you. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So in other words, the Jews assisted Rome in oppressing the hierarchies, the leadership assisted them in bringing further oppression by buddying up with them and causing their own people to worship the Caesar, right? Now, so the image of the beast would speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he caused, a few more verses, all the, all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, prophetic language. We've already read back in Revelation chapter six, where the 144,000, what did they have? The mark of their father. And we went back to the book of Ezekiel, and we saw what had happened. The Lord told the angel, mark all the people of God so that they are not harmed, and then go through and destroy. It's back in the book of Ezekiel. We read it, all right? Uh, Cain, Cain and Abel. You know, he murders his brother, and then they, you know, hey, if I go out there, they're going to kill me. And we know that the Lord put a mark on him. So, that, so this is prophetic language that they understand. It is not a chip. It is not a barcode. It was not Gorbachev when he had the mark on his head, which was one of the claims. Really. Ronald Reagan, he, his name had six letters, first name, middle name, last name. All had Ronald, Joseph, I don't know, somebody knows middle name, had six letters. Reagan, all 666. Now the mark of the beast is not 666. It's 666. It's not three numbers. It's a numerical value, right? And we'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, it was none of these things. Not a chip. It's not a barcode. It's not a smartphone because it's in your hand or on your head. It's none of these silly things. All right? It's not going to be a healthcare chip. Of course, I remember in 2000 and probably 2013, maybe, I remember hearing crazy stuff about, you know, Obama's healthcare plan. And in just one year, maybe two, they're going to have a chip in every American's hand, and that'll be the mark. No! Stop with this foolishness. Only crazy Christians say this nonsense. And it's failed prediction after false prophecy, after failed prediction, after false prophecy, and no one's ever held accountable for it. But if you teach something contrary, you're the bad guy. Amen. 
We need not to, we're not trying to destroy people. We're not going after other people's ministries, but there needs to be a truth that sets people free. How many millions upon millions upon millions of Hitler was the Antichrist for him? There was actually one guy, forget his name at the moment, you guys, Rick, I don't know if you remember his name, somebody might. There was a gentleman way back in the early parts of the 1900s who wrote a book and he laid out his theory how Mussolini, Il Duce, uh, Benito Mussolini, you know, how he was the, the Antichrist. And of course, when that didn't pan out, he's the only guy I've ever heard of who went back around to all those churches and offered a refund and to take that book back. Because he, he's the only one. Everybody else, man, late great planet Earth, 1970. Hal Lindsey, this brings it out. Well, there's still false prediction and false prediction and nobody's getting a refund. You got blood moons and, and beasts, you know, and uh, uh, lions, bears, and whatever. Oh, my. You know, it's, and, and nothing. And so, and then you offer a positive biblical case that's not bizarre, wild theory after absurd, unbiblical bugs the size of Volkswagen coming out of the ocean and all sorts of non stuff. And you give a biblically defensible alternative, and you're the bad guy. Amen, Amen for the bad guy. Amen for the bad guy. Jesus was a bad guy, too, if you will, according to the religious system of the day. Do you understand what I mean? He brought some doctrine that they didn't understand. He told you err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. You know, told the Sadducees that. They 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 knew the I, I years ago I, I come up with this little phrase uh, that I knew some people who knew the scriptures, but they didn't know the word. There's a big difference in having proof texts and quoting scriptures. So you can Judas hanged himself, go ye and do likewise. I mean, you can make scripture say anything, but that doesn't mean it's right. Amen. There's a scripture, Judas hanged himself. There's another scripture, go you and do likewise. That doesn't mean that's what it means, though. Amen. You can't just put those together, and, and yet we do this with this absurd eschatology when it comes to this stuff, and uh, we need some voices to give an alternative. Amen. An optimistic, biblically-based, not bizarre theory, new, daily news headline-based, a biblical theory. Yeah, and every single time, it's, like the scriptures have to mean something. Amen. And so every single time there's an eclipse, sooner, uh, sooner, solar, lunar, sooner, words together. You know, I, we're all the time preachers like in the Greek. One day you guys would be like in the Jordan. It means you know, sooner, solar, lunar, sooner, sooner in Jordan. In the original Jordan means the sun and the moon, right? At some point, these things have to, you can't generically apply them to every blip that ever happens in the sky. Amen. Somebody burps in Israel's direction. It's a sign of the times. Like, no, man. Give me a break. And every single eclipse, oh, that's the sun, moon, and stars. going to be dark. and going to be turned to blood. Stars are going to fall in the sky. You can't apply that every time something happens. Amen. It's got to mean something and actually be fulfilled. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. You know, so that's why I don't get like every next next week, next month, next year there will be there will be a meteor and all sun and moon stars. No, it, it it can't apply to everything over two thousand years. It's got to mean something at some point. Is that? Yeah. I don't have to say that right, but I hope it means you get it. <laughs> Thank you. It says, and he provides that no one will be able to buy or, buy or sell except the one who has the mark. Now stick with me. Either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who understands, Revelation 13 and 18, let him who understand uh, who has understanding 
calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, how many of you, with your Bible that's in front of you, have a footnote? It may just say it, but and there are some, but in Revelation 13, 18. How many of you have a footnote or a side note or a little square thing on my Bible app, you know, the physical Bible, that has a note that says some manuscripts read or read 616? Cindy's has that. Uh, Tamara's has that. Anyone? James has that. Orlis has that. So, and some of you are still looking, but that's four people right there. Mine has that. That's, that's true. There's early manuscripts that, you know, this letter sent out, oh, 616 is the number of the mark of the beast. Okay, well, why is that? Is it a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction. And I'm going to explain to you how. How many of you are familiar, of course you are, but I'm just setting, you know, setting it up here. How many of you are familiar, familiar with Roman numerals? Mm-hmm. And so it's letters with numerical value. Right, right. I think a V is five, right? right. Uh, the X is 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's about all I got. The L is There you go. So we're on the same page, basically. Well, even the same thing in Hebrew and in Latin. That was the same. You know, so and so there were some early Latin manuscripts that had the rendering as six hundred and sixteen, whereas others in Greek had six hundred and sixty-six. Well, the reason for that is very simply, in the Greek, and the numerical value of the letters, the name Nero Caesar, Nero Caesar, or Neron Kaiser, the numerical value, the letter, in the Greek. yes, in the Greek, for 666. So you take every letter and you assign its numerical value. Let me have a picture of that. Hold on. Uh, Okay, I can't put it up here, but I do have it if anyone wants to see it after we dismiss here. Uh, Aaron Kaiser, in Greek, the numerical value assigned to each letter totaled 666. But in Latin, in some of the Latin, anybody ever heard of the Latin Vulgate? Yeah. You know, even the Catholics up until what, the 50s, 1950s, I think they still did everything in Latin until Vatican II where they changed it. You do it in the common tongue. But uh, Latin Vulgate was very prominent uh, for a long time, but nonetheless, in Latin, Nero Caesar, numerical value assigned to each letter, totaled 616, all right? So John is saying, here's wisdom, and let him who reads this understand. John is expecting them to understand this. So this letter is sent out to these seven churches, and someone intercepts it. Well, he didn't just put, oh, Nero Caesar. He just did the numerical value of his name. And they, bear, they easily understood what he was talking about here. Now, um, and it gets into a lot of the historical things. Like, for example, the Jews, uh, the Jewish people in their land, Judea, Israel, uh, whenever they would want to go to the marketplace, all right? I forget, I think it was called the, kit my memory, I think it's called the Agora or something like that. But whenever they would go into what was known as their marketplace, you would go and then you would come into the entry place. And then they had incense burning to Caesar. And I forget what you had to say, but you would have to say something like, Hail Caesar, and then they would take the ash of the incense and put it on your hand or on your forehead. And so you were allowed entrance, and then you're standing before the meat market or the bread market or the milk market or the whatever market that stand their place, and then they see your mark, then it's legal to sell to them. 
But if they didn't give homage and allegiance and worship to, you understand the Caesars were considered gods, divinity, deities, right? And so the Caesars were called Lord. They were called the sons of the gods, the son of God. That's why it was very scandalous to call Jesus Lord or the son of God. It was like a threat against Rome. You understand? And so these things were playing out in very real, day-to-day, practical ways. It doesn't mean you don't have a barcode and you can't buy groceries at Walmart. It had nothing to do with that. <laughs> now, in closing, I want to show you a video that's like just two minutes long, and he'll explain it perhaps better than I do. This is a theologian. Matter of fact, this guy, he lives in Atlanta, but he's, uh, his name's Gary Demar. Gary, D-E-M-A-R. He has some great books and material. Uh, he's not charismatic, but you know his eschatology is great. Um, as a matter of fact, he went to Western Western Michigan, so that's kind of a little thing to do. Uh, it's just a work. I can do this. This is up here. And then Gary, who doesn't know what he's joining us today, but he's coming up here. Thank you, Dr. Understanding, it's just maybe some of us haven't heard it before. 
Well, I'm finished, and uh, that's that. So we'll pick up in chapter 14 next week, but um, presumably. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Of course, we're recording, so if you have to watch this again. I have one. Yes. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am a truth seeker like Lynn Hyde. Yeah. Thanks for bringing the truth. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that, my brother. Church family, I, I mean that. Thank you. Uh, you know, to me, it's just incredibly good news, man. I just, we have a gospel of grace that should include eschatology. Yes. No, God's, God's not mad. He's not even in a bad mood. Footnote somewhere in the back of my head, oh, but one day he's going to come back and murder a few good people. So Jesus put God in a good mood for a little while. <laughs> he's going to get ticked again. All these things, you know, which Jesus isn't the Father's Prozac anyways. That's not how the cross works. But, um, this is just good news, man. You know, and the Lord didn't want any of these things to. He didn't want the Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I would that you would come unto me, you know, like a mother hen wants her chicken, but you, but you won't. Therefore, your house will be left to you desolate. He didn't want those things to happen. But John's describing spiritual scenes behind the visible, natural scenes. You know, and so the Lord didn't want this to happen. They rejected him, and it was they knew for thousands of years what would happen. In Deut especially Deuteronomy, man, 27 through 32, 33, they knew what would happen if they weren't faithful to the covenant. And the ultimate fulfillment of their faithfulness to the covenant wasn't doing anything in works, it was just receiving the Messiah. But some not only killed him by God's allowing it to happen, you can't take my life, but I lay it down, but they did that. Uh, but then, even with every, every bit of evidence before them, from miracles to miraculous other things to the preaching and exposition of the scripture, they still refused to accept their Messiah. And it ended in fulfillment, uh, utter destruction. They went down with a sinking ship. Not because the Lord wanted it to, but, you know, it was just the, you play with fire and you get burned, right? But the Lord is good, and again, I'm never demanding or dogmatic or anything. You report, you decide, right? Uh, if this is at the very least gives you something to think about, I think that's a great thing. And I think the world needs this message in this gospel. So praise God. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.